It's my pleasure to welcome uh, Bishop Grant Lamarckon to Christ the King. Uh, Bishop uh, Lamarckon served as uh, the area bishop for the Horn of Africa. Most countries have many dioceses. This is a diocese that had uh, many countries. His uh, diocese area of his oversight included the countries of Eritrea, Djibouti, Somalia, and Ethiopia. He served there from 2012 to 2017 with his uh, wife, Wendy. We actually have some uh, overlap with him through our mission partner, uh, Gatachu, although his area's of focus is a little bit further south of where uh, Bishop Lamarckon served. However, my context, the context in which I first uh, knew Grant was not as a, a bishop, but uh, as a professor. He was served as uh, the professor of New Testament at Trinity School for Ministry. That's where I received my education, and Grant was a great professor, a challenging professor. He uh, taught New Testament, and one of the passages that we spent the entire semester studying was the passage that we're going to consider this morning as we continue in our sermon series of First Impressions first impressions of Jesus, one of the very common first impressions that many had of Jesus was that here was someone with a remarkable authority. Bishop Lamarckon, thank you for being with us. Thanks, David. It's a, it's a joy to be with you this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and that you are always willing to speak to us and help us. We uh, do place ourselves before you this morning and ask that through these words you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can be your people in the world and extend your healing and your forgiveness to those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, it, it sounds a little daunting that we did spend an entire semester on this text while we were learning how to do biblical interpretation. We use this as the guinea pig text. I won't spend as much time on this text this morning as I did with David uh, those years ago. Uh, but there are some things in this text that I think will be very helpful for us this morning. But before I do that, I just want to say uh, that I bring you greetings from my wife, Wendy. She couldn't travel to be with uh, me this weekend, but she is praying. She is, uh, she's a person who who prays, and uh, so she's praying for you and for me this morning as we meet to worship. As David said, my wife Wendy and I were in Ethiopia for six years until late last year, so we've been back about 11 months now, and it's, uh, it was a remarkable place where the church is growing, and, but, but where there are great complications. Most, you know, the Anglican Church is largest where uh, the British had colonies or where the Americans had colonies, actually. But uh, that was not the case with the Horn of Africa, with that part in Northeast Africa that looks like a rhino horn. Uh, it was, uh, Ethiopia was never colonized. The Italians attempted to do, to do it twice. And both times were driven out. Both days are public holidays in Ethiopia. Those days that the uh, the Italians were driven out of Ethiopia. Uh, so they're very proud of that that fact that uh, Ethiopia has always managed to rule its own affairs in one way or another uh, through emperors or through through other means. But it's a complicated place. It's uh, Ethiopia itself, where most of our churches were, had 70 languages. Uh, I come from Canada, where we have two languages, and we fight about those. Uh, imagine being in a place where there are 70 languages. There are 
two very prominent religions in the Horn of Africa, Islam and Christianity. So there, there, are, there are tensions uh, there. The church, the, the Anglican church did not come to birth through white missionaries who came into the country. White missionaries did come into the country, but they, they came and worked with the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Uh, and they, they only started English chaplaincy churches in the Horn. But there was a war between North and South Sudan for many, many, many years. And during that war, uh, hundreds of thousands of refugees came into the western part of Ethiopia along the border with what is now South Sudan. And many of those were Anglicans. And so they started Anglican churches in the refugee camps and then moved out of the refugee camps into local villages and they moved cross-culturally across tribal lines to, to reach out to all of the language groups in that area. So that by the time I got there, I was told that there would be 38 Anglican churches in the Gambella region where most of our Anglican Christians were. When I actually got on the ground, I discovered there were 50 because in between bishops, they just went ahead and planted 12 new churches without asking anybody's permission. Uh, there were 150 churches by the time we left last year. So the church is growing remarkably, uh, but in the midst of great difficulty. Uh, there were the population more than doubled during the time we were there because there is now a civil war in South Sudan. And so those refugees have flooded the Gambella region increasing the population from 300,000 to 700,000. The people who live in that area are Nilotic people. They are the tallest people in the world. There's a guidebook for, for Ethiopia that says, in the Gambella region, you can tell the Anuak and the Nuer apart. The Anuak are very tall and very black, and the Nuer are taller and blacker. They are wonderful people. They are, they are warm and friendly and there is nothing like being in a worship service among people from these ethnic groups. It's full of joy uh, in the midst of suffering and poverty. But they have some problems. And one of their problems is the culture from which they've come. There are many wonderful things about the culture from which they've come. And I have no desire to destroy or denigrate any of the really positive things about their culture. But one of the things about the culture of most of those people in the area is that revenge plays a large part in the culture. When a firstborn son is born among many of the groups in Western Ethiopia, uh, the little boy is brought to the witch doctor, an animal sacrifice is made, and the child is dedicated, among other things, to take on the revenge of his grandfather's enemies. So it's a culture which, yet, in which revenge plays a large part. And this revenge looks very much like the story of Cain and Abel. The Anuak people are farmers. The Nuer people are cattle herders, kind of like Cain and Abel. Uh, they have a different view of land. The Anuak say, this is our land, we use it for farming. The, the New Air people say, no, no, it's not your land, it's God's land, and so we can use it to feed our cattle. So their cattle go through and eat the crops, and it's, it can cause a great mess. While we were there, there was violence on occasion in the area. 
ethnic violence, which was exacerbated by the fact that people are very poor. Uh, unemployment is at about 10%. Uh, sorry, employment is at about 10%. Unemployment is 90%. So there are many people who have little to do. So when there's, when there's trouble, there's lots of trouble. And that trouble is usually expressed in inter-ethnic violence. And forgiveness is not a part of the local culture. Forgiveness across ethnic lines is not, at any rate. There are ways to forgive within ethnic groups, but across ethnic groups, that's very, very difficult. But you know, lack of forgiveness is not just their problem. Lack of forgiveness is a problem in every culture. Last week, I had uh, the, uh, the pleasure and the responsibility of participating in the defense of a doctor of ministry thesis. And the, the priest who was defending her, her thesis had written on forgiveness. She had done, <clears throat> over a number of years, courses on forgiveness in her parish. And people, a lot of people had come to these courses, and she had interviewed them afterwards to find out how they had, what they had learned and how they had responded to them. She did surveys with people. She explored issues of forgiveness with them. And what she discovered was that people who took the courses learned a lot about forgiveness, but many of them expressed that they still could not forgive. Many of them had issues with their parents, trying to forgive an abusive mother or father. Many of them had issues with their former spouse, spouses uh, after a divorce, where they still have to have contact because of children or other things, and they found it really difficult to forgive. Many had troubles with their, with their uh, siblings, with their brothers and sisters, often over money and inheritance issues. Forgiveness, it seems, is almost a human impossibility because, you see, if you forgive some, someone, you pay for it. You pay for it. You lose something if you forgive. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Today's story <clears throat> on the surface looks like a healing story. Jesus is in Capernaum. As you know, Jesus was brought up in Nazareth, a city of maybe two to three hundred people, a town, a village, a tiny little hamlet of two or three hundred people in Galilee, uh, but his home base for his ministry was Capernaum, uh, a larger town, about 1,500 people on a crossroads. Uh, so a little bigger, it had a, a synagogue that, that uh, has been identified, you can go and visit it if you want, and two blocks from that synagogue is Peter's mother-in-law's house, and built onto Peter's mother-in-law's house would have been Peter's house, the way to, to, uh, to build a house usually in, in that culture was to simply build on to your parents' property, to build some more, use one of their walls and build some more walls onto it. Interestingly, the story we read today says that Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days and it was reported that he was at home. At home. Jesus, it seems, had a house in Capernaum, probably built right onto Peter's house or Peter's mother-in-law's house probably using some of their walls. Probably this house, this home of Jesus, was no more than a very small room. We might, it, we might have closets bigger 
than this house. So Jesus is there uh, at a place which was becoming his home base, and people began to gather together. So many people that there was no room for them. So evidently something had started in the house, some teaching. Perhaps Jesus was praying for people and they were being healed. healed. Other people came, they crowded in, and pretty soon there was such a crowd around the door that no one else could get in or get close. But there are four friends who had another friend who was sick. He was paralyzed, and they wanted to bring him to Jesus, and they couldn't get in. So they climbed up on on the roof. Homes in that area during the first century often had a ladder or a small set of stairs up onto the roof, and the roof was used in the cool of the day. Uh, often when the, the inside was, uh, had, had heated up all day, people would find it cooler in the evening to go up onto the roof. So up on the roof they go, and then they start taking it apart. And have you ever heard people say, the poor guy who owned the house, you know, these guys are taking the roof apart. He's going to have to fix it. He's going to have to hire a carpenter and get it fixed. Actually, it, the poor guy is probably Jesus. This is his place. He probably didn't have to hire a carpenter. He could probably do it himself, but he would have to pay for it. He'd have to get the wood and he'd have to put the labor in. Maybe Peter helped him repair it. That's a bit of speculation, but... There it is. So they came and they lower their friend down through the roof in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks at their faith, not the faith of the, man, the paralyzed man. Maybe the paralyzed man couldn't speak. Maybe his paralysis went that far. We don't know. But Jesus looked at their faith and he healed the man. Ah, but before he does, he says, My son your sins are forgiven. There's been a lot of speculation about whether the paralysis that this man had was related to some sin that he had committed, and we don't know. Certainly, there was a lot of conversation in the first century about the connection between sin and sickness, and certainly there are connections between certain sins and certain kinds of sickness, so that's, it's not totally out of the realm of possibility that that was something of what was going on there. But there's much more going on there. There's some kind of spiritual perception that Jesus has about this man's need. And this man's need being primarily about forgiveness. Notice what he says to him before he says, your sins are forgiven. He says, my son. Jesus uses familial language. He uses language of the family to address him. Just uttering those words, Jesus says, this man is to be included in our family. This man is part of the, that family of God that God loves. Then he says, your sins are forgiven. And this provokes the scribes who are there, who begin to think, what in the world is this guy doing? Who does he think he is? There was a system for dealing with forgiveness of sins in Judaism. If you committed a sin, you realize you committed a sin. You went to Jerusalem, you bought an unblemished animal, you brought it into the temple, you presented it to the priest, the the animal was sacrificed, the blood was shed and spread on on the altar. 
forgiveness of sins was available to a certain extent. What is Jesus saying he's doing? Well, he's either saying that he is himself is God who can forgive, or that at least he is kind of replacing the temple system of atonement in, in his own, with his own authority. And so they call it blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus perceived what they were saying. We find this throughout the Gospels, especially in Mark's Gospel, where Jesus seems to know what people are thinking and is able to articulate what you're thinking. And so he says, what is easier? It's a typical Jewish argument, actually, to argue from the greater to the lesser. He says, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? I could say that. Any of us could say that. But we wouldn't know. We wouldn't be able to see the results. But what if I said, get up and walk? That would be harder because then there would have to be evidence presented. And so he turns to the man and says, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and go home. And he got up and immediately took up the bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Yes, it's a story about a miracle. Yes, it's a story about a conflict which is emerging between Jesus and the Jewish authorities. But at its root, this story is a story about Jesus saying that he has the authority to forgive sins. That somehow forgiveness of sins is centered in who he is. This is really an important thing. A few years ago, at the turn of the millennium, there was a lot of conversation about forgiving the debts of countries that looked like they would never be able to pay off their debt anyway. There are many countries around the world that are so indebted to banks and to other countries that it looks like they're going to default on those debts. Often those countries have been robbed blind by the, the rulers of that country, so that the only people benefiting really have been the Swiss banks. And so there was a lot of conversation about debt forgiveness around the year 2000. And some was done. But of course, the reality about debt forgiveness, forgiveness of any kind, and, and when Jesus prayed the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins, Actually, the word in Matthew in the Lord's Prayer is forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. When Jesus talks about forgiveness and when we talk about forgiveness, someone always has to pay. To forgive the debts of countries that owe billions of dollars means somebody has to absorb that debt. It simply doesn't disappear into thin air. Somebody has to pay. And this is the problem with forgiveness. Somebody always has to pay. This is why we find it so difficult to forgive. Because if I forgive my sister, my brother, my parent, I am saying it's over. I can no longer nurse 
the resentment. Something has changed, and I suffer for it. Yes, I may also be freed by forgiving, but there's a sense in which forgiveness will only come at a cost. Well, in Gambella, forgiveness was difficult. We have many instances of people that I knew very closely who struggled with the whole idea of forgiveness because they knew that the cousins of that person over there had killed his uncle. Or in one really horrific situation, we had two theological students in the small theological college that we started. And one night, around two in the morning, their cell phones rang. Everybody in Ethiopia, no matter how poor they are, they have a cell phone. They only have two changes of clothes, but they have a cell phone. They're cheap. There are no monthly plans. You just buy the minutes that you need to phone. And what they would do is phone me and hang up so that I'd have to pay my minutes to talk to them. (laughs) So their cell phones rang, and it was their families informing each of them that the brothers of one of them had just killed the brother of the other one. What do you do in a situation like that where your roommate's brother, brothers, has just killed your brother? They came to class the next morning, obviously in tears and anguish, and told this story. And there were more tears as the whole class absorbed this issue but also as they hugged each other and prayed for each other because they had learned something by giving their lives to Jesus. They had learned there was something stronger than revenge. You know, the story of Cain and Abel is not often discussed in the rest of Scripture, but the story does make an appearance in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12, There is a long list of heroes of the faith from the Old Testament. And near the end of that list is Cain and Abel. That story is there. When we were in Ethiopia, I used to ask our people, we would read the story of Cain and Abel together, and I would say, who is the good guy in this story? And people would say, Abel is the good guy. I would say, why? They would say, well, Cain is the bad guy. He killed his brother. And I'd say, what did Abel do? after that because the story goes on after Abel is dead God comes to Cain and says where is your brother and Cain says I'm not my brother's keeper and God says to him the blood of your brother is crying to me from the ground what does that mean it means Abel wanted vengeance Abel wanted revenge Maybe Abel would have said he wanted justice. But it boils down to the same thing in this case. And does God do it? Does God take an eye for an eye in this case? No. Cain is punished. He is banished. But he is protected. God does not take vengeance on Cain for Abel's sake. Abel wanted vengeance. And so the book of Hebrews says, 
the blood of Jesus speaks a stronger word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel says, I want vengeance, revenge, justice. I want an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And the blood of Jesus says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. The ministry of Jesus is focused on this issue of forgiveness. It starts here in Mark's gospel, very early in the gospel, Jesus saying that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. It climaxes at the end of each of the gospels by Jesus going to the cross for our sins. And in the middle of the gospel, the forgiveness is a constant theme of Jesus. It's right there in the center of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. It's in the first sermon that he preached in his hometown in Nazareth, where he preached on a passage from Isaiah that talks about release of the captives, forgiveness for the captives. It's throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus knew, however, that forgiveness has a cost. He knew it in this story. He forgives the man. And then he absorbs the cost of fixing the roof. But more importantly, at the end of his ministry, there is a cost. Jesus says at the end of the gospel, near the end of the gospel of Mark, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as the price of freedom for many. He goes to the cross for our freedom, for freedom from sin, for our forgiveness. There is always a cost. And for Jesus, the cost was not just a few boards and some labor to fix his house. The cost was his life, the life of the very Son of God for the sins of the whole world. The good news for us in the Gambella region of Ethiopia was that the culture of the people was being transformed, not completely overturned, but expanded by the gospel. Expanded so that people no longer saw simply people of their own ethnic group, their own language group, as part of their, uh, as part of their family. But they saw everyone they come, came in contact with as either their brother or sister or a potential brother or sister. They saw that God's family was much wider than their ethnic group or their language group. Uh, that God's family is actually a worldwide people of God of all of those who have learned that their sins can be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, 
may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you. For the honor of your name. Amen.